0: Lord, thank you for giving us this day. Thank you uh, that we have time to spend in your word. Uh, Thank you for uh, providing the means to do this. And so we ask that you please be with us in truth and in spirit. Uh, Please keep us from error. And please teach us by your Holy Spirit the meaning of your word, um, that we may better learn how to love you, Lord, and how to serve you, and how to live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Welcome guys. So today we're doing two books. Today today we're finishing um, Paul's letters, right? We're doing Timothy and Titus and then after that it's uh, the general epistles. So I won't, I won't say much by means of introduction. Uh, we'll start with 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy. And um, 2 Timothy... What is happening there? What is the context of that book? So you can see that Paul is about to die. You can see that in chapter 4. So if you look quickly at chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me at the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing so paul is able to say i have run the race if me and you have the privilege to know when you're about to when you when you're about to die when you're on your deathbed where you can see your death coming wouldn't it be great to be able to look back on your life without regret and say i have run the race and fought the good fight and may that be our aim as Christians, to look back at our lives and say, yes, I have lived my life striving to glorify God. So that is a context. Paul is a dying man. And Second Timothy is a great letter to see what is really important. Whenever famous people die, throughout history, there's been this fascination of their last words, their final words. What did so-and-so say in their final moments? When people are on their deathbed, they're probably not talking about finishing that project at work. Uh, They still need to hand in their assignment. I need to go buy that new car. You're not worried about your bank account or the amount of followers you have or how your profile picture looks. Everything suddenly falls into perspective. You focus on what is really important, right? And that is what's happening with Paul here. Paul is focusing on the important things. This is what the church is about. This is what's going to happen to the church and this is what the church needs to be. So if you look at chapter 1, turn to chapter 1, he greets Timothy. Verse 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved child. Again, you see the special relationship, the bond that he had with Timothy, who he calls his beloved child. Verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Louise and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure it dwells in you as well. So it's a really good encouragement here. You see generational impact of the gospel. You see that. The grandmother and then the mother, and now Timothy. So that's three generations. And God loves to do that. He loves to save in families. So be encouraged if you have an unbelieving family. Um, and be praying for them that the Lord might save them. But there's a lot of opposition and a lot of difficulties in pastoring this church for Timothy. He's a young man, he's very sickly, and he's tempted to withdraw from the ministry. So Paul reminds him to look at verse 6. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, to, to, in, sorry, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So there must have been a temptation for Timothy to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus and with being associated with Paul. And have you experienced that? You know, I have. There's been many times when, I'm scared to mention Christ in certain circles or in certain contexts with this group of people or these family members. Because you might get opposition, right? You might get looks or you might get called names or people won't say anything, but you're afraid of how they will think of you. Like, is he an idiot or, oh, she's one of those people who believe in the sky fairy. You know, you're a science denier. Can't think for himself. He's blinded by religion. You know what people say. And so you might also not want to be associated with someone who is on fire for the Lord, you know, an unashamed Christian like Paul. And so Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus and don't be ashamed of me. And then in chapter 2, he says, chapter 2, if you go down to verse 3, it says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Not, sorry, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So it's farmer, uh, athlete, and soldier. He uses these examples, these images to help us understand what it means to be a Christian. If you're a soldier, you're focused on one thing. You're seeking to please the general. You're not concerned about anything else you know soldiers just follow orders they don't have an opinion they don't have a say in the politics or the nature of the conflict if they're in a war in most countries even the law applies differently to a soldier their focus is solely on pleasing the general and following his commands and so it is with christ our focus should be should be pleasing the lord obeying his commands an athlete an athlete who runs legitimately he doesn't try to cut corners or bend the rules Likewise, we must live legitimate lives, being authentic to the calling of the Lord and a farmer who gets reward. You know, a farmer gets a harvest from his hard work. He says, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the phrase rightly handling the word, if you translate it literally, it means cutting it rightly, right? So if you didn't know, Paul was a tent maker. It's how he made money on the side. And as a tent maker, you would have to be very careful when you cut out the materials for making a tent. You had to be very precise. You had to cut straight. Otherwise, if you get the dimensions wrong, then your tent is not going to work. Right, The tent is going to be a mess. And that is the idea here. Cut it straight. When handling the word, make sure you cut it straight and precisely. And that is why we put in the hard work of understanding scripture. Uh, We work hard and we study to understand the cultural context, the historical context. We study the languages, the grammar, all of these things. We use these tools and then we exegete what the meaning is so that we can get the right interpretation of scripture. So you and I have to put in the hard work. And then turning to chapter 3. So, Remember, we saw in first Timothy, he started to talk about the last days. So the last days and how people are going to forbid marriage and and, and uh, proclaim abstinence from certain foods and all kinds of teachings are going to creep in. And so, again, Paul refers to the last days here in chapter three. So look at verse one. He says, but but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. I think if you read that you can definitely see all of that as characteristic of our day and age. This is a description of the last days and what are the last days and more importantly, when are the last days? So there's two aspects of it. Firstly, the time from Christ ascending into heaven and the time when he returns, that period in between, those are the last days. So right now we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since Jesus Christ ascended into heaven 2000 years ago this right now is the great tribulation. So John will say in his epistle that uh, I am your fellow servant in the great tribulation. So John was saying he's in the tribulation 2000 years ago. And so we are in the tribulation. Now we are in the last days. And so when you read verse one to five people being proud, arrogant, abusive, heartless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures, people have been like that for the past 2000 years, right? It's not just today, but of course, In the last last days these these things there will be a magnification of these things it will be greatly intensified right it will become even worse Um, that is a second aspect to this it's it's um, um, it's like when we speak of uh, judgment day there is the day of the Lord and then there is the great and final day of the Lord right and likewise um, in the same way we are in the last days And then closer to the time of Christ's return, we'll have the last, last days. Uh, And then, and so Paul then talks about false teachers and false teachers among them. He says, if you look at chapter three, verse six, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So one of the features of, False teachers is that they take advantage of women, whether it is sexually or financially. The Pharisees did that, right? And Jesus pointed it out. Today, it's the same thing. All of these prosperity guys, it always comes out eventually that they take advantage of the women in their congregation. Think of uh, Christian cults. You know, women are always taken advantage of and sexually abused. The leaders, Take money from poor widows who are struggling and it's terrible, but it's, it's one of the way it is a way to identify false teachers. And then he says, if you go down to verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be shocked when it happens. In a sense, you can rejoice when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. It's a sign that you're doing something right, right? But the key is that it is for Christ. If you if you are a jerk, if you're a terrible person, and people treat you bad for it, you can't call it persecution, right? If you commit a crime and you're sent to jail, you can't say, ah, oh, you know, it's tough being a Christian. No, it's because you've broken the law. But this is actually a guarantee that if you want to live godly in Christ, then you will suffer persecution. You will suffer opposition. And he says, verse 13. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is why it's so important to study scripture, which is the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation and then here's this very important verse verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so paul is saying all scripture is breathed out by god now in this in this in this context here the primary focus of paul's statement is the old testament paul here He's talking about the Old Testament as being inspired. But when when Peter writes about Paul, he, refer, he refers to Paul's writings as scripture. So these writings are also inspired and breathed out by God, right? So it is God's word and it is profitable for us. It equips us for every good work. That is why we must learn the whole counsel of God. I've seen a lot of churches preach um, topical sermons all the time they do it all the time Uh, one Sunday it's this text in Matthew the next is this text in the Psalms the next it's the first Corinthians there's nothing wrong with that but you miss out on the benefit and the blessing of preaching through a whole book right which is you get the whole counsel of God there's no part of God's word that isn't unprofitable right even Zechariah And that is an actual book in the Bible. And you should read it if you haven't. Because it's easy. It's easy for a preacher to preach from text that he likes or text that he finds easy to understand, to to stick to theology that you know and are comfortable with, you know, to stick to passages that only speak about love, Uh, love your neighbor, do this, 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 or uh, any other topic that you just want to constantly talk about. So if you but if you if you preach through a whole book you have to preach even the difficult and uncomfortable and challenging parts of scripture there's no hiding but those difficulties are necessary because all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable so if you cherry pick this verse and this verse you won't be in a sense you won't be a complete christian because you will not be properly equipped for every good work right you can't pick and choose what you want with God's word. You can't choose to obey some parts of scripture and ignore others. That is just old fashioned disobedience and there will be consequences for that. So that is a key verse for us. We do not want to see the Bible as just another book because it is not just another book. It is the word of God. It has no errors. There are no contradictions. It is inspired. And that is our starting point. That is our foundation. Otherwise, you will be tossed to and fro. You have no foundation. And this is just another book that you can interpret how you like. And then we get to chapter four. And you know, whenever you you have you seen like a movie and there's a father who's lying on his deathbed and he tells his son to come closer, lean in closer, and then says something profound and impactful. I get that picture between Paul and Timothy. It's the last words. Um, of a dying man giving a final charge to his son in the faith. And he says, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So he says, I'm saying, I'm charging you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom to preach the word, right? So that is, so, so what is the most important thing for the church? What are his dying words? His focus is not on, Hey, make, make sure people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Make sure there are miracles. Make sure communion is done properly. What is the most central thing that the church should be doing? It is to proclaim God's word. Proclaim God's word in season and out of season. So when it is popular and when it's not popular. And there are times when preaching is popular in the culture. There are times when it's not so popular. And history will show you that. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to change the world, to save men and women, to confound the wisdom of the wise. Somebody standing up in front at a pulpit, declaring God's word and calling on people to repent and believe and saying that there's consequences if you don't, God has chosen that method, right? God has chosen to do it that way. The authority is not within the preacher. It is God's, right? It's God's word, not the preacher's. So the the authority lies with the Lord. And so he tells Timothy to preach the word because, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So people will not endure sound teaching. It's part of the last days. And we see this, right? People do not endure sound, sound teaching. The word endure is interesting because it sounds like it's something that is unbearable. Like you have to endure suffering. Like, oh, I have to bear with sound teaching. How much longer can I put up with this? You know, And sadly, that is the case with unbelievers who cannot stand to hear proper doctrine. Even some people who profess to be Christians, they don't want the truth of God's word. So they don't want proper doctrine. And in the last days, in the last, last days, closer to the return of the Lord, this will be amplified. Right? It will get worse, this rejection of sound teaching. It will be a great rebellion. It will be a great apostasy. And so they reject sound teaching. And what do they turn to? Look at verse 3. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So the rebellious will have itching ears. And uh, when you have an itchy ear, it has to be scratched, right? You can't not scratch it. It's just one of those areas where it's like, you can't endure it. And so you want to go, you will want to go where your ear will be scratched, where it will be satisfied. And you know know what's one of the best ways to grow a church? One of the best ways to, to build a following, a mega church, is to never talk about sin people want their ego stroked. They want their pride to be built up, right? They want their passions to be supported. And so they will go to where they are told they are amazing and beautiful and good and worth loving and that they are the best. You don't want to be told about sin and judgment. You don't want to be told you're a gossiper and a slanderer and you're lustful and you're an idolater. You want practical tips on a better marriage and how to run your business and how to be a better version of you, how to live your best life now, essentially. And then you just sprinkle Jesus' name on it, right? Say it's all in Jesus' name because what you're doing, what you're trying to do is to sanctify your passions and your idols. Jesus makes you feel better in your conscience. And so when you come to a church where sin and judgment and hell and wrath and holy living are spoken about and confronts you, but instead of repenting, you harden your heart. Because God's word will push at your conscience, and there's only two ways to respond. It's either um, in faith to turn to repent or to harden your heart. Sometimes people will hide behind cultural things. So, for some people, sound doctrine will confront their culture and their worldview, and they will say, I don't like that. I don't like this teaching on masters and slaves. I don't like this teaching about women and modesty. I don't like this view on whatever the case may be, whatever the culture is dealing with at that time. You know, I don't want to hear about this sexual purity. I don't want to hear that I can't have sex outside of marriage. You know, I want to hear something that suits me better. We want, we want these things. We want money and power and uh, security and sex and safety. And so we sanctify, we package it with Jesus. And What that does is then it appeases you and it makes you feel better. So it's a very sobering check. Uh, It's a very sobering call to check what kind of ears we have, you know. And it's not just the prosperity gospel, right? It's not just greed that people want. It's all kinds of things. It's also power Um, and it's emotions. We are living in an age of emotional tyrants. You know, it's all about feels and emotions and uh, empathy Where the greatest sin, the greatest crime you can do today is to offend someone and make them feel bad. The problem with that is nine times out of ten, the truth is offensive, right? And God's word is the truth. And we need to preach about sin and rebellion. You know, we need to preach about God's wrath and his judgment. And we also need to preach about his grace and mercy. We need to be proclaiming the truth in love. So the, the Bible does help with marriages and running businesses and dealing with emotions Um, it deals with all of that definitely but what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul right the most important thing is that you are right with God and that is what we should prioritize prioritize the gospel uh, preaching uh, preaching God's word proclaiming his truth so uh, look at verse three right says but having itching ears they will yeah, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So um, it's very interesting when you read that, 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 uh, that verse very carefully that they accumulate for themselves teachers, right? If you know anything about economics, then you know that what's foundational to any kind of market business is supply and demand, right? Demand for a product creates a supply of that product. Where there's demand, someone will see an opportunity To supply what is needed and then make money. And this passage is telling us that there's something of a supply and demand going on here. uh, When it comes to false teachers. right? There would be no false teachers if people did not listen to them. The people accumulate to themselves. They gather for themselves false teachers. There's a demand to hear this kind of teaching. To hear prosperity teaching. Or to hear teaching that panders to the emotions. To hear about self. And so they go out and they find people to tell them what they want to hear. They find false teachers. And that is why congregations are held accountable for the pastors that they have. Right? You can't just say, you can't just say, I'm just a member of a church. It is not my job. No. Like scripture tells us you, as a member of a church, are responsible if there's false teaching. If you are condoned false teaching, then you are also responsible. And so he says. Um, if we go down to verse 6, now Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Right. So again, uh, he's, he's talking about his death there. And then there are some greetings in the end, and there are some very sad ones. Verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So the King's, the King James Version will say, For Demas has forsaken forsaken me, having loved this present world. So Paul had worked with Demas in the ministry. They were in ministry together. But Demas sadly loved the world more than God. And reminds us of the truth of what uh, the book of James, what James says, James chapter four, verse four. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, right? You can't have... Can't love God and love money. Can't love God and love this idol. It's either God, it's either friendship with the world, uh, and, which means enmity with God, or choosing God, which means becoming an enemy of the world. Then he says, verse thirteen: uh, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. So this is such a simple human text. You know, bring my jacket and my books. Remember, Paul is in prison. So he might be cold. You know, he needs some books to keep him busy, to study and read whilst he's sitting in his cell. And he says, verse 16, at at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So it's kind of sad. At the end of his life, he faced a lot of rejection. But the Lord was his refuge. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, me through me, the message might be fully proclaimed And all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So uh, if you haven't read this book, uh, go through it in your spare time. And keep in mind that this is a man on his deathbed. And so he'll be speaking about what's really important, the stuff that really matters. I think it'll be very helpful to you. And most important thing is preach the word. There are churches, there are churches that will have five minute a five-minute sermon or they will have a two-hour sermon, but it has nothing of scripture, right? It's just a TED talk or it's just a performance or it is self-help speech by a guy with amazing uh, uh, oratory and great speaking and rhetorical skills. And it's funny because you hear people saying, Oh, you know, the spirit just moved among us. We didn't even have a sermon. And Like have you heard that? And it's people will say we just started singing, and the spirit just moved, and we were carry- and we carried on singing and worshiping for two hours. We didn't have even have we didn't even have a sermon. It was amazing, but what would Paul say about that? Right? Is that what the spirit would do? Would the Holy Spirit actually stop people from hearing the word of Christ and being pointed to Christ? That would never happen. Um, Paul tells us the most important thing is to preach the word, and so that is what we need. That is what we need to keep central. Um, as as part of the church, as part of the body, so that's an overview of Second Timothy. Are you guys? Are there any questions? Are there any thoughts that you guys would like to share on that, or anything that didn't make sense, maybe? Okay, I take silence as a no in this case, so we are good. Okay, then let's move to Titus, which should be on the next page. So, um, Paul writes a letter to Titus, and Titus is written a couple of years before 2 Timothy. Titus is living on the island of Crete, and we see this in chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 5 he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you, right? So Paul instructs Titus in mostly the same thing that he did with Timothy. Uh, this is what the church must look like. It must have elders and members. Must do this and that. And Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus has to appoint elders. Um, and so we read in First Timothy the qualifications of an elder and deacons, and the qualifications for those two officers. They're almost identical. The only difference is teaching, right? It's a requirement for an elder to be able to teach. So a pastor must be able to teach, but it's not a requirement for for a deacon to teach. So here in this book, Paul only mentions the elder's qualifications. So verse six, he says, uh, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So an elder must be a one woman man, right? So, He's against polygamy as well. Uh, polygamy was a problem back then. So you can imagine that in most communities, the chief would have multiple wives. And in a community like that, the chief would most likely be an elder if he became a Christian. And Paul says, no, you cannot be an elder. You know, you have to be the husband of one wife if you are married. Um, you, can be, you can be unmarried and be an elder. You can be single and be an elder. Timothy wasn't married. Paul was never married. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking as well, I think Titus at this point also wasn't married. Okay. And so an elder, um, married or not, must be sexually pure. If he commits adultery or fornication, he is disqualified. He's to be removed as an elder in that church. If you are disqualified from ministry, it doesn't mean that you are not saved, right? It just means that you are not to be the pastor there. And I'm sure you've seen many churches where uh, the guy should not be the pastor anymore because um, they don't keep to these teachings, right? They don't keep to these teachings, these commands, which are so basic. They are not complicated. And so verse 4 says, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. So does this mean that the children of an elder must be believers? Must they be saved? Or does this mean that the children must be faithful? So it depends on how you interpret it. In First Timothy, he says in chapter 3 verse 4 that uh, the, the, the elder must manage his own household well in dignity, keeping his children submissive. So it seems that there's a different emphasis. Some argue that the children must be faithful. Some argue that the children must be saved. Others say that the children must just be faithful and submissive, which is what I lean towards. You can't say that his children have to be believers because imagine you're a pastor and you and your wife have just had a child, right? That child is a month old. That child is definitely not saved, right? I can tell you that for free, right? The child can't make a profession of faith. It can't be baptized. So is that that elder then disqualified, right? Let's say the child grows up and is now 16 years old and makes a profession of faith and gets baptized. If you had removed the pastor, do you then call him and say, listen, you can come back because your child is safe? Like that wouldn't work, right? That would be foolish. If you are consistent and say that it must be that his children are believers, then you would have to apply that consistently. From the context, though, he also says in verse 5 that they must be uh, not open to the charge of debauchery. So that goes with the principle you see in First Timothy, which is that if his children are not faithful or submissive, if his children are not obedient to him, then he's not qualified to lead the church. He can't manage his own household. How do you expect him to manage the household of God if he can't manage his own home? And I'm sure you can think of pastors who should not be in ministry because who are the worst kids? You know, like I think if you've been in any conversations with uh, in Christian circles, You know that pastor's kids are the worst kids. Being a pastor's kid even comes with all these negative connotations, right? You're expected to be rebellious and disobedient, a menace to society. And that's really sad. There should be no such thing. We call them PKs. They should just be K because we should call you kid because your father's disqualified and is no longer a pastor because he can't control you. And again, what that does, uh, what... What what does that also tell us about what Paul is dealing with over here, if you think about it? Here, Paul is dealing with how the church looks to the world. What does the world think of the church when the pastor is caught in a sexual scandal, an extramarital affair, when he's caught uh, drunk and driving, or he gets a divorce, when his children show up in newspapers for being part of scandals because they are... Little devils who grew up to be bigger devils. What are people going to think of the church? It's no wonder why people are not going to come to church. You know, I've seen unsaved friends and family have better morality than the church, right? They have better behaved kids than the church. So why would they go there? To be preached at by an adulterous man? To be taught how to lead a family by a man who can't lead his own? To be in a church that condones that, that allows such a man to be an elder out of some false sentimentality and a false love is to be like the Corinthians who were letting some person have an affair with their own mother-in-law and they were not grieving but they thought they were being loving and Paul condemns that and we should condemn that but can you see how simple these instructions are these are simple verses children and wives sexual pu- and how you treat them uh, sexual purity managing your own household that is normal morality and yet the church gets gets this so wrong and so with deacons and elders we get remember with deacons and elders we get the structure of the church that you might know how to behave in the household of God right this is what this is all about how God's church works people in this day and age are trying to get away from any kind of authority um, any kind of uh, hierarchy right but it normally goes nowhere Right, It actually ends badly most of the time. It ends badly because that is not how we are made. We need structure. We need hierarchy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you read Genesis, it says it was null and void and the spirit hovered over the waters. The picture we get in creation is that the world is in chaos. There's no form. There is no shape. It's all disordered. And then the spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and creates. And what is God doing in creation? He is bringing order. He's bringing, he's ordering and he's structuring. He structures the days. This will, the, uh, they will be this long, uh, there'll be night and day. He structures the animal kingdom. This is the food chain. He structures the plants and how and what they grow, right? And then God creates man. And what is man's mandate? Man is to exercise dominion over God's creation. And what does that look like? It's bringing order and structure. Right. That's what we do as as human beings. We bring order and structure. We, We see problems and we bring order to fix them or to improve things. When things go wrong, the opposite is happening. There is disorder and chaos. It's a tearing down of the hierarchy. You see it in Western society. It's what happens in relationships. There's a there's a there's a tearing down of the hierarchies of the order it's bringing chaos into it in marriages the man is not leading the wife is not submitting that falls apart in families children run the home now right it's going to end badly when you raise children without any discipline the end product is disgusting hierarchy is not evil in and of itself it is good it's biblical and so we need it in the church as well and so god is giving us the structure and how it should be maintained so if you turn to chapter 2 chapter 2 he then Paul turns to different people, right? He says, verse one, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what accords with that? Verse two, all the men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So he looks at different categories now, and he says, all the men, this is what you should be like. Not having a midlife crisis, not divorcing your wife to chase after young women in clubs. Instead, be dignified, be sober-minded, and self-controlled. He says, verse three, all the women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So here he's talking about the older, the older ladies. They are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous. Not gossips. You see, you see in the other pastoral letters that the, the ladies who are not married, they go around and they are busybodies in other people's lives and they become gossips. Going around, visiting, having tea and scones and gossiping and slandering other people. Paul says, no, that is not how older ladies are supposed to be. They are supposed to be reverent. And when they do meet other ladies, the younger ladies, what should they do? Teach them. Not complain about how useless men are, but teach them how to love their husbands and their children. And that there is a command for all the ladies to teach. Uh, that, so that, a, that, that this command exists, right, for all the ladies to teach the young ones how to love implies that they need to be taught how to love. So don't come and say, oh, I already know how to love. We all need to be taught how to love. Isn't that right? What are all the commands in scripture about? When asked about what, what is the greatest commandment in the law, what was Jesus' response? Jesus said it was to love God and love your neighbor. All the commands in scripture teach us how to love God and love neighbor, right? Your neighbor includes your spouse and it includes your children. And so we constantly be, we, we need to constantly be learning how to love. It's crazy because we, we think of ourselves as loving, but we, really we don't know how to love because if we did, there would be no problems in the world and why is this to be done verse 5 that the word of god may not be reviled again you see how it's about witness so that nobody can come and say yo these christians are terrible you know um i've heard i've heard that the the divorce rate the divorce rate in the church is the same as outside of it i don't think it's the case um, but even if the numbers are close to that it is tragic right it's a terrible thing um and the word of God will be reviled if wives are not loving their husbands and loving their children. And if men are not self-controlled and dignified because there will be all these crazy things happening in the church. And what will the world say? They will be like, Yo, you know, look at those Christians. Look how it is being in the church. They, they must be part of a cult. It's crazy. So it's helpful to read these epistles and think like this, to think, what are we displaying to the world? And so he turns, he turns to the younger men. He says, verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And is that a problem with younger men? Definitely. Self-control is a problem in many areas. Right? Sexuality, money, anger, zeal and passion. Be self-controlled because if not, your strength and your energy is going to be destructive instead of constructive. And you don't want a testimony to the world that the, the church is young and brash and all over the place. We need godly young men and godly young women. It says verse seven, show yourselves so sorry, sorry, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, have nothing sorry so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us so you see it's it's so that the world the enemy will have nothing evil to say about us you see how the concern here is for our testimony to the watching world so that the, so that if the world has anything bad to say about the church if it has anything bad to say about us it must be lies that is the goal okay. verse 9 he says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So we are not, we are not slaves, but we do have employers. Right? We do work for companies, businesses. <clears throat> As a Christian, will you join in with your colleagues when they are always grumbling and complaining about your boss? Or will you be different? right we should strive to be different not argumentative not pulfering verse 11 for the grace of god has has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age so what has brought salvation it's the grace of god right we all agree that we are saved by grace through faith but notice what this grace also does It has not only saved us, it's verse 12, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That is sanctification. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that sustains us. So we are not saved by grace and then we continue in good works. You know, we don't say, thank you, Lord, you've saved me, I've got it from here. No, we are saved by grace and so we continue to live by his grace. Uh, through which, through his grace, we can say no to worldly passions and we can live self-control, upright and godly lives. I need grace to be saved and I need it to say no to sin. Okay, so chapter three, we turn to chapter three, so, um, so, okay, so going to a point, so going back to, so back in chapter one, verse 12, Paul says, I'm just going to read it. Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, lazy cluttons. And then he says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So he's generalizing about the Cretans, saying they are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy cluttons. So remember, Titus is based in Crete. It's an island where there, there are lots of problems, right? Socioeconomically, it's poor. And the people there are also poor in character and morality. right? It's very, there's a lot of uh, sin going on there. And so what we can take from that is that there will always be places like that. There will be places like that. You can think of areas where the people in this part of town or in that part of town tend to be this way or that way. right? This town is full of drunkards. This town is sexually immoral. Uh, this town is known for idolatry. That is where, but that is where the church is though, right? It's where it goes. And so if the church is there in the example of the Cretans, then most likely you will have to make elders from people who come from that area, right? People who come into the church with all those issues. But just notice what Paul does though. If he was preaching today and he said this, people would call him racist. They would call him racist or sexist or whatever. But he's being honest. That is exactly what the Cretans are like. In fact, he quotes their own prophet in describing them. And that is the reality that we are living in. There are going to be sins specific to an area or or a culture. You know the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Because it's known that it's an area with particular sins associated with a particular culture and a particular people in that place. Right. And so it'll be the case in our lives, in our daily living here. Right. Um, There are areas Joburg is known for uh, sexual immorality and greed. Uh, Maybe another area is known for something else. Uh, These kinds of people are known for these kinds of sins and these kinds of behaviors. Right. Um, That is a truth that we shouldn't ignore. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how bad or evil the place is. The fact remains that the gospel needs to go into that area too, wherever it is, you know, whether it's uh, the area where that is sexually promiscuous or loose, uh, the, the place for, that's full of idolatry, the place that is poor in poverty, where there's crime and crazy things going on. Point is, the church needs to go there. church needs to go out to all places and needs to be proclaiming the truth, needs to be proclaiming the truth of God's word, sound teaching, sound doctrine, um, holding fast to the faith. And then going back to chapter 3, verse 12, Paul then sends his greetings and instructions. Uh, Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. Okay, and that's Titus. So are there any questions, any questions, comments or thoughts? I'm keen to hear what you guys think or if there's anything that maybe stood out for you. The floor is yours. So there's a question from Claude Lee she's asking Could you you please explain Exactly what deacons are And what their roles are And does Acts 6 uh, Verse 1 to 6 Explain how the deacon office Was instituted Yeah so I'm just going to Acts Chapter 6 quickly So in the meantime I'll answer the first part So deacons Uh, Deacons are, um, so the word deacon, diakonos, means to serve, right? And that, that, so that's a way to describe them. Think of them as servants, uh, men who are there to serve in the church. And they are there to serve to meet the practical needs of the church, right? Because if you look at Acts uh, chapter 6, where they choose the people to serve, what is happening at the time is the church is growing, right? Um, It's, it's acts. So, you know, the apostles are going around and there's just been this explosion of the church. And so as it gets bigger, um, you know, problems start to come in practical problems, but they lead to serious issues in the church where there could be division. There could be, you know, um, fractions and all that, all the bad stuff happening. And so, Um, What they do is, what the elders do, what the apostles do is they appoint deacons, they appoint men to serve in this area of uh, meeting the practical needs and dealing with the very practical nature of the problems in the church, right? And, And so that's what the deacons are and that is what they're there to do. So keep in mind that even though they're there to serve the church, their focus is actually to help the elders, to help the pastors, right? So deacons are there for the pastors, so that the pastors, the elders, can devote themselves to the ministering of the word. So, the problem, the problem that you see in Acts chapter six, wasn't necessarily uh, that problem. So it was, I think, it was the 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 widows, the the Greek widows, were being ignored when there was rations of food. So when you read that problem, that isn't the the main main problem. The main problem is that now the elders had to go had to stop preaching had to stop preparing sermons and all that stuff in order to go deal with that practical problem right and so um that's the issue there it's that okay now the elders do not have time to focus on the on the on the ministering of the word and so that are, that's what deacons are there for they are there, their role is basically to help the church meet the practical needs of the church so that the elders are free to focus on ministering the word, right, so that's why when you have to describe what the actual uh, description of the deacons is, it's very hard to say it's this and this and this, because the needs of the church will look different, so the needs of the church in Acts 6 was, you know, um, administering, what is it, it's it's rationing out food and making sure all uh, the food is distributed properly, right, but in this church it might look like it might look like um, transport, right? So um, the, the pastor can't focus on preparing, on giving a sermon on a Sunday because he's helping with lifts. You know, he's there with his bucky and he's going up and down, bringing people to church. And by the time it's time for the sermon, he's like, oh, you know, he's all over the place. So the deacon will come in there and be like, listen, I'll get a license, I'll drive, I'll do this. You just focus on getting ready for the sermon, right? So that's just an example, but it could be anything. Uh, churches have different needs. So that is what deacons are. They are there to serve. They are there to meet the practical needs and challenges of the church that would otherwise take up the pastors' time. Right? Not to say that it's now beneath the top the pastor, but you know they they are then given um, that that role in in assisting the pastors to um, make sure that things are taken care of in the church. I hope that ex- that explains it. So yeah. So, um, Acts 16, I think, yeah, it gives, it gives you, so Acts 6, sorry, gives you then um, background into how it was established. But it, there's an argument that it's not, okay, and I'm forgetting the other details, but yeah, I think I'll leave it at that for now. And then Percy uh, Smog is asking, with regard to his children are believers, if the child is unfaithful, unbeliever, and independent... Should the eldest step down, or is this uh, an except If the child is unfaithful, believe, unbelieving, unrepentant, should the um? I don't think so. It's it's uh. So I think while the children are in his household, if they are not, if they are not uh, submissive and obedient and, and obedient to him, then he should step down because he can't manage the household. But it's like if you now. You know, you leave your, your your father's house and you, you know, you become an apostate. You know, you're like, Ugh, you know, I don't believe or whatever the case may be. It's just like, nah, uh, you know, I don't really care. Um, but then that's that's speaking towards. So the thing is, it's not really speaking towards like salvation. That's it's more that the child's character and behavior, you know, uh, especially relating to their parent. Is the child submissive? Because, you know, that's something that the responsibility of the parent Um to be to be a a submissive child, uh, it's not it's not really to say that um, he's uh, you know a bad child. It's just submissiveness to their parents. So it's sometimes you know people pastors have children that don't come to the faith. You know some sometimes they have children who profess to be believers, but then after a while they they apostatize. So uh, John, I think John Piper John Piper has a son who's You know like now a famous um, What do you call it? Atheist So uh, I wouldn't say He should step down from being a pastor Because um, And people will testify Like from what I've read at the time You know when the child was growing up He was an obedient and faithful child So yeah So if the child is independent and out um, Yeah I, I don't think it he he should step down. I don't think it falls into that category, basically. So yeah, I don't know if if you guys agree or someone has a different view on that. Please stay in the comments or you can unmute. Are there any other questions or thoughts? I'm always keen to hear your thoughts. If like a verse stood out for you. Being in the last days, um, like I I remember when I found out that I always thought like we're not in the last days yet, like not that bad and then like one day like I was taught like oh we've been in the last days, that was very interesting to me, but yeah. Okay, seems like everyone's happy then, Um, I think we're going to go our separate ways. So. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. So next week, we will. uh Okay, you know what? Let me close us off in prayer first, and then I'll just make an announcement on what's happening going forward, and uh, we can look forward to our weekend. So let me just close for us in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, and uh, may you remember, Father, that. Uh, um, in the business of life and uh, and the many things that go on in our lives and in the church uh, as we try and serve there, as we um, uh, help expand the kingdom by proclaiming uh, the gospel and serving and doing all kinds of things, may remember what is central, what is most important and that is um, the salvation of men and women and help us to be uh, men and women of the book, men and women of sound doctrine, Lord, as you have encouraged us or as you have commanded us to um, rightly handle the word of God and we ask for your help Lord in doing this we ask for your help Holy Spirit in understanding never relying on our own wisdom um, but relying on you uh, to teach us and show us the truth and as we go our separate ways we ask that you please keep us please bless us in Christ Jesus we pray in his name we pray amen